the demands that were raised up two years ago during the international election, when we're out at the gates talking to members, those demands really did coalesce into what this TA is. And I think that all of that is the product of my coworkers not being willing to settle for less, not willing to accept things being forced on us that we don't want to live under. I think that we're kind of in a new moment in the Teamsters. I think it's more reflective of a new moment in the working class and the labor movement more broadly, where workers are done with givebacks, with concessions, and with living with things that we're not willing to live with. I talk to a lot of union members who have nothing like a contract campaign in their you know, the, the phrase contract campaign is not even a phrase. It's like there's bargaining and you don't know what's on the table until they, the leaders come to you and say, here's the TA, we're going to vote on it. People don't even know what, what's being proposed. We should all set our sights higher. We're not going to settle for the non-contract campaign, contract campaign anymore. We're going to do it like UPS teams just did it and better. Hello, my name is Teddy Ostro. Welcome to The Upsurge, a podcast about UPS, the Teamsters, and the future of the American labor movement. This podcast unpacks the unprecedented labor fight this year at UPS. On July 25th, UPS and the Teamsters Union came to a tentative agreement on their labor contract that covers over 340,000 workers. And if those workers don't approve of the agreement, then they still may launch one of the largest strikes against a single company in U.S. history. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at InTheseTimes.com and TheRealNews.com, where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. Before we start the show, I just wanted to make another correction. In our last episode, we declared that a strike by UPS Teamsters in 2023 would be the second largest strike against a single company in U.S. history, but we have spoken too soon before yet another larger strike was uncovered. That is the AT&T strike of 675,000 workers across three unions in 1983. Thanks again to friend of the show, Barry Eidland, for pointing this out. I'll throw a link about it in the description. On to the show. This week, we're talking about the tentative agreement that was reached between UPS and the Teamsters Union on July 25th, what its contents mean for the workers, how the Teamsters extracted serious concessions from the company, why some Teamsters feel that there is still more left on the bargaining table, and what's next for the union. But first, a quick recap on what's going on around the country. As I explained in our July 25th livestream with In These Times and The Real News, a tentative agreement was reached on that very day, after nearly three weeks of hiatus in negotiations. The union's next step was for two representatives from each UPS Teamsters local to review the agreement and choose whether to recommend it to their members. That happened on July 31st, and almost every single local endorsed the agreement. One holdout local initially did not endorse the TA because of a specific issue, but that was resolved in a side agreement with the company. So for the locals that voted, endorsement was unanimous, which is a sea change from previous TAs, especially 2018s, on which the union was divided. The next step is UPS Teamsters across 176 locals will vote yes or no on the national tentative agreement, as well as their regional supplemental contracts. That's taking place between August 3rd through the 22nd. The contracts will be ratified or rejected by majority vote. Union halls and UPS hubs are abuzz around the country with debates and discussions about the TA, and locals are holding meetings to go over the contract language with the membership. 
it's hard to say which way the vote will go in a union as large as the UPS Teamsters. Many of the UPSers I've spoken to are ecstatic about the TA, others not so much. If the TA is voted down, then the National Negotiating Committee will return to the bargaining table with UPS, and a strike could still be in the cards. To unpack this moment, I invited Sean Orr and Al Bradbury onto the show. Sean Orr is a UPS package car driver and elected shop steward of Teamsters Local 705 in Chicago. He is also co-chair of the International Steering Committee of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Al Bradbury is the editor of Labor Notes, which is a media and organizing project that has been empowering rank-and-file workers to put the movement back in the labor movement since 1979. Al has been on the Teamsters beat for a while now and has written a number of informative articles recently about the UPS contract campaign. Just a heads up, this is not a thorough breakdown of the tentative agreement. When we talk about why some members are disappointed with the TA, we use this space to unpack the higher level context of why that is and what it means for the labor movement, rather than to tally criticisms of the specific contract language. I will throw some resources in the show notes, including the tentative agreement itself, for listeners who are interested in digging into the nitty gritty. Al Bradbury and Sean Orr, welcome to The Upsurge. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's start with the tentative agreement. We can't cover everything here right now, but perhaps we can do an overview of what's in it. I'll throw it to you first, Al. You wrote an article in Labor Notes that tried to break down all the highlights. Can you do that for us right now? Sure. Big picture, this tentative agreement is a sea change from any previous UPS Teamsters contract in recent memory. I think we should say that first. Your union is coming out of an era of concessions, and this contract, this agreement, makes big gains. So the rest of the labor movement should take note of that and set our sights higher. Specifically, there's a lot in there, and as you said, we can't cover everything, but I want to talk about maybe four or five things, eliminating the two-tier among delivery drivers, what the wages are in there, combining part-time into full-time jobs, ending the the four-six punch, and and what it does on extreme heat. So eliminating the two-tier among delivery drivers, creating that tier was the biggest concession in the last contract in 2018, and the biggest unifying issue in the vote no movement that propelled reformers into power in in the 2020 election in the Teamsters Union. So this second tier was known as 22-4 jobs, just because that's the provision in the last contract that, that created it. These drivers were making 6 or $7 less per hour than regular package car drivers, the first tier, for doing the exact same job. Under this agreement, that second tier will be completely eliminated immediately, and all those 22-4s will be immediately converted into regular package car drivers. Now on wages, part-time wages were the biggest sticking point in the final weeks and where a lot of attention was in the public eye, I think as well. The majority of the UPS workforce works inside the warehouses, uh, are not wearing the the brown suits that, that many customers are familiar with. The people sorting the packages, unloading them off the big trailers, loading them onto the delivery trucks. And this happens at a grueling pace. Uh, Someone told me they're supposed to unload a thousand packages. And I was like, wow, a thousand packages a day? And they were like, no, a thousand packages an hour. So like, that's what this job is like. Those inside jobs are overwhelmingly part-time. The turnover is very high. And even though the job is so hard, their wages are much, much lower than the drivers. And that dates back to the 80s. The current starting rate, the minimum hourly wage for part-timers is 1550 
Under this tentative agreement, that starting rate for new hires will go up immediately to $21 an hour and by the end of the contract, 23. So overall, an increase of $7.50 an hour from the current level. Now, existing workers, part-time and full-time, are all getting a raise of at least $7.50 over the life of the contract as well. And it's front-loaded, starting with an immediate raise of either $275 or coming up to $21, whichever is higher. So the lowest paid workers will get more than $750 over the contract, and there's an additional longevity raise for those with 5, 10, or 15 years in as well. Another big deal is combining 15,000 part-time jobs into 7,500 new full-time jobs, something that many part-timers want. These jobs currently are you know, in shifts of three and a half hours at a time, and a lot of people would rather have a full-time job. Meanwhile, a lot of drivers have the opposite problem, forced overtime, and especially being forced to come in on Saturday when that's your day off. So this tentative agreement says they can't make you work that sixth day anymore. And just to touch on one more point, uh, dealing with extreme heat is an issue that's gotten a lot of attention. I think in, in many of our jobs, as we see the climate crisis continuing to intensify. For drivers, this deal adds air conditioning in one third of the delivery fleet over the next five years, starting with the hard, hottest parts of the country. So the rest of the fleet, if the trucks that don't get the air conditioning during this contract are supposed to get additional fans, heat shields, vents, things like that. And in the warehouses, the deal adds things that you think would be automatic, but apparently have to be said like adequate drinking water, installing more fans, water fountains, ice machines. There's more, but I think those are some of the biggest points. Yeah, thank you. That was a really, really good overview. Sean, before we move on to the next question, is there anything else you wanted to pop in to mention? I think that I think Al, Al really hit the nail on the head with a lot of the gains in this TA. I'll just the only thing that I would add is something that for uh, package car drivers is a pretty big significant move. So as Al said, we do not have a limit other than the DOT and contractual limit to overtime. You know, drivers that when you start your day, if your day you don't know when you'll be over until that truck is empty, drop it off, go back home. You know, for a lot of us. That really limits our ability to spend time with family, with friends, go out and have a normal social life. But we get to make these things called eight-hour requests, where we can put in a request to the company for an eight-hour day. They have to dispatch us eight hours worth of work so we can punch out in eight hours or less, and those are granted by seniority. Under current contract language, if, the company, if you win an eight-hour bid and the company violates it, the only thing that happens is that a steward can file a grievance for two hours of penalty pay. Um, for the company, they're okay with this, you know? So if you come in, you've got an eight hour request, it's granted quote unquote, but you get to your truck and you still have 200 stops in there. The supervisor more likely than not will just tell you file a grievance, go out, do your route, you know? And two hours of penalty pay is nice, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I put in an eight hour request because I want to go spend time with my family tonight. I've got a uh, dinner date with my girlfriend. I've got something that I want to go do. Now we have language in this TA where the eight hour request can be enforced on the spot. We have a change in this language that says that if you are uh, win an eight hour request, that driver has the right to not work more than eight hours. If they over dispatch your truck, you have the right to take work off of your truck and leave it on the dock and drive out of the building. And it says right at the end that no man, no employee can be threatened, harassed, or disciplined in the enforcing of this right. Things like that, you know, more than dollars and cents 
mean a lot to coworkers like mine. The ability to have some control over our day. And I, I, I for one, am really happy to see that along with the list of other big gains that Al mentioned already. Right. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, I know some people were telling me that this may have to be worked out in arbitration as many other issues would be too, but just wanted to mention that. Sean, you are a package car driver and shop steward, and we just mentioned all these things that you guys just won in this TA. Still, of course, subject to ratification, but you can speak to your experience. You can speak to that of your coworkers. Can you help us understand in real terms, what these changes mean. You started to do that for us. What does abolishing the two-tier mean for you guys? You were a 22-4 until relatively recently. What what do the raises mean for part-timers? What will eventual AC and other heat protections mean for you guys? Yeah, no, I, for sure. I, I think that this is a pretty significant contract for uh, my coworkers. Starting off with the 22-4s, um, you know, like, like you said, I was a 22-4 driver until relatively recently. Um, I'm a, an elected steward in a building that has a lot of 22-4s. Local 705 in Chicago has the largest share of 22-4s in the country. This has been like an issue that we've been organizing against for a long time. My coworkers knew from the moment that they started working there that they were making less than the people who had been there before the, in the, before the previous contract was implemented on us. They knew that they didn't have protections from forced overtime like a lot of my coworkers did. And those are like, those are significant things for people. It became a huge point of agitation and organization for us for the past five years. I've seen a lot of young workers, people who have joined UPS as 22-4s, who have really become absolutely some of the finest organizers I've ever seen, some of the finest activists I've ever seen because of the impact that this tier had on their life. But beyond the pay difference, I think that one of the biggest uh, wins of getting rid of 22-4s is that it allows my coworkers who were previously in that classification to have a little bit more control over their lives taken back to them that was previously given to the company. Because 22-4s, you know, for the company, the you know, the wages, that's, that's kind of like a secondary issue for them. They care more about control over our labor and control over our lives when we're on the clock. And with 22-4s, they had a lot of control because Per the definition of that job classification, you could perform driver work or inside work. So that meant that on a week-by-week basis, you could be having a start time at 9 a.m. You're out delivering packages in a package car for the entire week, uh, You know, working as late as you have to. And then that Thursday or Friday, your supervisor can come up to you and say, hey, uh, volume's looking a little lighter next week. We're going to cut a couple of routes. You are not going to be a package car driver next week. Instead, you need to report at 1 a.m. to the building starting Tuesday. And on a week-by-week basis, we'll let you know whether or not you'll be returning to work as a package car driver. The company loves the ability to have that flexibility. They love to be able to tell us what to do and when to do it. And for my coworkers who week by week had to determine whether or not they could take their kids to school in the morning, who would be picking them up, whether or not they'd be able to get adequate sleep, that kind of control over their day-to-day lives was really extreme. I had a lot of coworkers lose their jobs because of the stress and the mental duress that that constant shifting put on them. I had coworkers who applied to be a package car driver that's what the, that was the job that they signed up to do, and they spent eight months working a third shift inside the warehouse. That 
that kind of strain that it puts on people is significant. The company didn't care because they had a flexible workforce. The fact that that flexibility was taken away from them is a huge concession to the company that we pulled from them. This is a group of drivers who now are going to be drivers, period. They're going to come in at the same start time as the other drivers. They're going to get paid the same. They're going to have the same overtime protections. And the company can't do a damn thing about it. That's significant. That's absolutely significant. That's a little bit more control over our lives day to day. In terms of the part-time pay, you know, I think that at my building, Jeff Street, I've heard nothing but good things about this TA from part-timers that I work with. You know, we have an MRA, a market rate adjustment in Chicago. It varies building by building. My building is $18 an hour. So all of my part-time coworkers are going to see at least a $3 raise. But the longevity raises mean a lot to a lot of people. A lot of longer time part-timers at UPS haven't seen a significant raise in their entire career. And I've got some coworkers who are going to be getting a $4.25 raise, some even more than that. That's the biggest raise they've ever seen in their life. That's just on that first that on first that, contract ratification. On ratification. On, right. on as of four days ago, they got that significant raise and they'll get a nice retro check for it. That's huge for them to like to show them exactly on our wage calculator exactly how much they will make in this TA and see the look on their face, realizing that they weren't forgotten about in this contract like they have been so many times before. That's huge. There's a lot of joy in that. And I think that overall people are feeling pretty good about this TA. They've, people see this as a step forward. You know, no TA is perfect. No contract is perfect. But this is about moving the ball down the field. And we moved it down the field quite a bit. And listeners of this show probably understand this by now. But I think it's important to underline how you guys got these gains in the TA of course, it was through organizing and it was through building a credible strike threat. And I think sometimes people hear the word organizing and don't really understand what that actually means. What did Teamsters actually do over the past year and especially ramping up in the past two months, month or so? How did you guys build the pressure on UPS such that they conceded on a number of fronts in this TA? Maybe we can start with you, Al. You wrote uh, an excellent Labor Notes article with Luis Feliz Leon on this very topic. Sure. Let me talk about what happened in this particular contract, and then I could also get into some historical perspective about how it's different from the past. There was some interesting activity I could tell you about in California, for instance, and also in Ohio, some stories I thought were particularly telling. It's night and day from the past. The first thing that's different is that the contract, there was a there was a contract campaign that members were part of and that it started a year out. And there was talk and that a whole year out and before leadership was talking and membership were talking openly about the fact that there might be a need to strike, that people should prepare to strike, that the union wanted to prepare to strike. And what what would that mean? And so some of the activities that are involved in in doing that are getting people involved in smaller actions, holding rallies, holding parking lot rallies in, at, at the work site, uh, doing, doing leafleting, just like talking to people, thousands of one-on-one -on -one conversations, you know, between one teamster and another about what are the issues on the table? What are the things you care about? What, you know, how far do you think we should go and what, what should we push for? Building a list, you know, starting to get a sense of like mapping out your workplace. Who are the, you know, who are the people who can get the word out? You know, who, who influences who? If we have a rally and, you know, we get these, 
get the people out from this area, but nobody came from this area. So how is our, you know, where's the gap in our communication network and taking actions. I know Sean has a, has, I know a story. There are probably many stories, Sean, about, about shop floor actions that, that, that you all took, for instance, defending a coworker who'd been unfairly disciplined, that that's partly a chance to practice, a chance to practice the, you know, the, the kinds of skills and confidence that you need for a strike for lower stakes. And once you've done that, you, you know, everybody comes out with a little more of a sense of like, oh, we did that, you know, what's the next step? We could do a little more of that. Felt good. We got what we wanted out of it. So in California, the story I wanted to mention, this, this group of workers, and I think this was led by some of the 22 Ford drivers, started what they called Strike Force. Uh, you know, this was many months ago, and they started having breakfast meetings um, before shift at a cafe nearby to talk about, you know, what are the, you know, what are the updates from bargaining? What are the issues we're interested in? What will it mean to strike? How should we be prepared? What's that going to feel like? You know, and start to talk through people's fears that they had too about, you know, you lose money in a strike. Could you get fired? You know, how, how does that all work? So that was drivers. There was also a meeting happening of, of part-timers in that workforce along similar lines, but they couldn't have it together because their schedules were staggered. And a big piece, I imagine, of of the organizing in, in many of these workplaces is how do you build solidarity between those groups that don't necessarily have a lot of interaction on a daily basis. And when they do, there may even be friction. You know, you know, why, why did you misload my truck this way? Sort of, you know, how do you build solidarity to be able to stand up for one another's issues? So one of the things they did is they organized a barbecue in a local park and people brought their own chairs and tables from home. And it was a chance for part-timers and full-timers and drivers and inside workers to, you know, hang out together, <laughs> build some, build some of that, that social solidarity. In Ohio, again, to, to build that connection across groups, one of the drivers and one of the part-timers started a, a petition together saying, you know, here's what our top issue is. Here's what your top issue is. We're going to back each other up. And I think, you know, and, and in that region, they were particularly concerned, the, the drivers, about the pension. And for the part-timers, the, the, the race was one of their big issues. So they went around and got thousands of people to sign on saying, you know, we're going to support both of these things, the one that matters most to me and the one that I know matters most to, to these other workers. And, you know, and we're all going to be willing to strike for, for all this stuff. And I think it should be said that a lot of this activity was organized by rank and filers, sometimes with the support of the local, the union local, sometimes without, you know, much support from the union local. And, and some of that stuff has happened, you know, in pockets over, over decades. You know, there's been this reform movement in, in the Teamsters Union, Teamsters or Democratic Union, that has been, you know, a hub of people who want to set their sights higher and organize stronger fights. And in past UPS contracts, you have people trying to do that locally. But the difference is when you have a national leadership that that's that's encouraging it, that's setting out, here's what the national program is, you know, here are some tools, we're asking, you know, inviting everyone to do this, we're all in the same timeline, you're part of something bigger, you're not having to just sort of, you know, slog it out on your own. That said, no matter how good your national leadership is, they can't actually carry it out. It has to be the members who carry it out because you can't, you don't have enough organizers to send somebody to every barn every day to be, you know, talking to thousands of Teamsters and getting people ready. So it was a huge difference having a national leadership that was for that, that wanted people to be involved and wanted people to even know what was being being bargained, talked about and, and shared. But it still, it was, it was members really who had to take the initiative and carry it out. And in so many places, you talk to people like they're the ones who figured out what day are we going to do the picket and the rally and made a leaflet and, you know, got a committee together. 
and did it. And often with support from Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which was having these webinars where people would get on and share ideas. Here's what we're doing where we are. You know, what what are you doing where you are? And those those webinars over the months grew from hundreds to thousands of people as more and more people got excited and involved. The historical perspective I wanted to give is that there's a backstory to this that stretches long before the past year. Um, there's this reform movement that people have been building in the union. And I think, you know, if you look 10 years ago, there was a vote no movement on the on the the contract in 2013 that they didn't succeed in voting it down, but there was a lot of a lot of networking that happened around that and that fueled a run for office by reformers in 2016 who came very close to toppling Hoffa. They didn't quite do it, but they showed it could be done. And it was not too long after that that Sean O'Brien broke with Hoffa and allied himself with the reformer side. And then there was another vote no movement on the 2018 contract with its new tier, and members did manage to vote that one down. And then Hoffa imposed it anyway, exploiting a, a constitutional loophole, and people were furious about that. And some of that anger, both over the concession and over how it had been forced upon Teamsters, fueled the campaign for office in 2020, when O'Brien and Zuckerman and the, and the reform slate did win leadership. Um, and and then also in 2021, folks managed to get a bunch of constitutional amendments made so that they could never force a contract on members again that, that way that they had, so that rank and file members would have to be on every Teamster bargaining team, including the UPS bargaining team this time from now on, and so that people would get strike pay from day one, not day eight, uh, which you know increases people's confidence too that, you know, that you can go on strike and all of that work that had been, you know, building over over years and over decades really helped build members confidence that they could strike and win. I think one thing to mention as well is the work that was done by rank and file, as well as leadership to build broader community and labor support. We're seeing a lot of solidarity, you know, to say the least, especially, um, you know, internally in the Los Angeles moment right now we're seeing with the actors and the writers, but also with the Independent Pilots Association when 3,300 pilots said, right, we won't cross the picket line, you know, if, if you guys go out on strike. And down to community organizations and socialist organizations like DSA, that was a big part of it, I think. This year and in 1997, Getting that public support more broadly was also critical. Sean, can you tell us about on the ground what it looked like in Chicago where you're at? I know Jeff Street is already a decently militant local. You guys were probably already quite organized when it started. But maybe you could tell us about the arc of getting your coworkers ready to, you know, show for a show of force. Yeah, I, I, I will I will try my best to do that because the story starts way before I, I started at UPS in 2016. Um, you know, Jeff Street has been a, a really militant hub for a long time. In 1997, Local 705 stayed out several days longer than the National did in the UPS strike. Um, but, um, you know, this contract that was imposed on us really did kind of set the terms for this current TA. Really, like, honestly, like, I think that the, per the arc of the past five years, if you follow it from where it started to where it ended, you really do see like a single kind of like truth come out of that, which is that the rank and file set the terms of this TA from the beginning, and they maintain that throughout. What do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, when the 2018 contract was announced and people got a chance to see it. Rank and file organized a, a historic no vote against the against the recommendation of the IBT. 
It was voted down. It got imposed on us the next day. And for us, that was the moment when we all knew in three years, Hoff is done, his crew are done. We're going to get people in there. They're actually going to respond to our needs. Fast forward to 2020, the international election and our unions heating up. O'Brien and Zuckerman had announced the, the year previously that they were running together. Our own Juan Campos out of Chicago joined the slate. Matt Taby, Local 251, joined the slate. A lot of good reformers started getting on board and we're building this movement. And, you know, the Teamsters United slate is out. We're hitting the gates. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the 2018 contract. We're talking about 22 floors. We're talking about part-timers living in poverty. We're talking about the lack of air conditioning. And not only is it, you know, myself and my, and, you know, other militant activists in the union who are out there agitating around that with our coworkers, we're also making sure that our per- prospective leadership are hearing that that they know what the issues are going into this. You know, the IBT is an organization, a trade union of over 1.3 million members. And yet inside of that, you had the 340,000 UPSers. And out of that, a relatively small job classification, 22 fours, the, the, the phrase 22 four became well known to Teamsters across all industries because it became a defining issue of the international election. It became a defining question of, of how do we view the legacy of Hoffa and what stance will our leadership take in the next go around? That doesn't happen naturally. That happened because rank and file workers insisted that it was put at, at, at the top of the issues that we were facing in this international election. Our union deciding that a two-tier is acceptable and enforcing it through even when the members uh, voted down. I think that all of that sort of continued to build this momentum, continued to show that the rank and file had the initiative and we weren't slowing down. The demands that were raised up two years ago and during the international election, when we're out at the gates talking to members, those demands really did coalesce into what this TA is. And I think that all of that is the product of my coworkers not being willing to settle for less, not willing to accept things being forced on us that we don't want to live under. I, for one, find a lot of inspiration in that. I think that this is, I think that we're kind of in a new moment in the Teamsters. I think it's more reflective of a new moment in the working class and the labor movement more broadly, where workers are done with givebacks, with concessions, and with living with things that we're not willing to live with anymore. But I think that the level of creativity that rank file activists took really helped us to win this TA as well. Like Al was saying, you know, we all knew what needed to be done. We needed to have a union presence on the job. We needed to be getting people out, doing the kinds of activities that get them ready to walk a picket line potentially. We have to build a credible strike threat from where we are to where we need to go. And that looked like the parking lot meetings. That looked like strike force out in San Diego. That looked like all these different examples, these great examples of workers taking some creativity with what was needed to get themselves ready to fight. And you you take all that and you add it all together and really created this incredible movement. Uh, One that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think is just getting started. Right. I think this, this, what you guys have been saying, you know, 
just we we saw that workers fought and they won in this past year whether whether or not you know it's enough of a win uh through the voting process we'll have to see right what members actually think but i think you know that's a lesson for the labor movement that's a lesson for workers everywhere and we're seeing the fruit of that as well your colleague at labor notes al wrote an article luis felice leon about how this ta is already having an impact right in raising the expectations of some Amazon workers and Amazon organizers. And, you know, despite those very real gains, I think listeners of this show are probably aware and maybe feeling some of this themselves, that there, there is some member disappointment with the current tentative agreement. In every contract campaign, some members are going to be upset. You know, we're talking about decades of and decades of concessions. So expectation of one contract fixing everything from the past 25 years, um, is, is probably not on the table, but I do think it's important to address that disappointment here. I want listeners to understand the context of why some folks may disappoint, may be disappointed and why some folks may even be voting no. You know, there, there were serious gains uh, made compared to previous UPS Teamsters contracts, arguably even more uh, substantial than in 1997. But clearly there is some sentiment out that, that, there that there was more left on the table. While a lot of folks are probably relieved that there wasn't a strike on August 1st, a minority probably wonder, you know, what could we have achieved with one? Um, so my question to both of you is, or a couple questions is, you know, how do you understand members' reception or reaction to the TA, both positive and negative, for those within the union and even outside the union? What does this TA mean for workers and the labor movement? And finally, for those who are disappointed, where do you see that coming from? I think a couple things in terms of members of those who are disappointed. One piece of that is that members' expectations have gone way up, and that is a good sign. That is a healthy thing. It reflects that Teamsters are taking ownership of their union. They're no longer satisfied with just avoiding concessions. They're developing a sense that they have more power than it seemed like a couple years ago, that more gains are possible, and starting to set their sights higher. And I think you see, you know, sort of the agenda that was set a year or two ago, people looking at it and saying, well, you know, what else might we put on that agenda? It wasn't on the table now. What, you know, what else might we look at about how things are now and say could be different? You know, and that, that's, that's healthy for going into the next contract and the next as well. There's also, as Sean said, a larger social, political, economic context that we're in the moment that we're in. There's a pandemic effect, for sure. We've seen a mood of greater boldness around the country among union and non-union workers over the last few years. And people saw during the early days of COVID how willing their employers were to put their workers' lives on the line for profit, how little they cared about keeping us safe in so many industries. And I know UPS workers were on the front lines of that. And we saw how the billionaires found ways to use that crisis to increase their wealth even more. UPS made record profits last year, has been really raking in the money during the pandemic. So I think some of that, it's it's the... the which side are you on factor is is very clear in in the world right now. And we as a class, we the working class are rightfully angry. There's also inflation. Workers are demanding more because we need more just to hold steady because to fill up the gas tank costs more, to fill up your fridge costs more than it did. 
workers also see that we have increased leverage because there's a labor shortage. Uh, the boss needs you more. If they fire you, they're going to have a harder time replacing you and you're going to have an easier time finding another job. And so that gives us more power than we had. And the other side of that labor shortage is that in our jobs, we're all being pushed harder to work more, to work faster, to get more done with fewer people because everybody is understaffed. So we're angrier for a whole bunch of reasons. We're more confident, we're more powerful, and we see that we're more powerful, that makes us more confident. And all those factors contribute to the strikes we've seen, John Deere, Frito-Lay, now the Hollywood writers and actors, as well as this burst of organizing at Amazon, at Starbucks, at you know, a number of other big name and small name employers. And all that in- contributes to people's willingness to build to a strike, people's willingness to take more of a risk, and people setting their sights higher. I think for those of us outside the union who are disappointed not to see a strike, it's worth saying what a shot in the arm it would have been to the whole labor movement to have a strike. A strike at UPS would have been a teach-in to the whole nation on worker power. Everybody's got a UPS around them. Everybody would have seen it. It would have been in every newspaper, on every news channel. You know, you would have had workers out picketing not just for an hour or two as they were in the practice pickets this summer, but all day, every day, 340,000 of them. You know, we all would have known somebody who was there. It would have been everywhere. The bosses in Wall Street would have been panicking. And when you won, it would have been very clear and visible to everybody that it was worker power that did it. And I think we know it was worker power that did it. People who were following the business press saw what power you had, but it just would have been on much clearer display to everybody if it were in the news everywhere, the way the way that it would have been if there were a strike. And Amazon workers and Walmart workers and FedEx workers would immediately have taken note. And there, it, you know, there would have been many more strikes and uh, many new organizing drives directly inspired by this one. So in that sense, a strike is a great opportunity, you know, and people watching from the outside might be disappointed not to see one. But but it's also a lot to ask of people who are taking the strike to, you know, to do it for, for those reasons, for the sort of sake of the whole working class. Uh, it would have been set a tremendous example in particular for the auto workers who just kicked off bargaining with the big three. That's another union that's newly elected reformers. There's a grassroots movement trying to mobilize people, and they're working to rebuild an active membership and to put an end to two tier there. So the contract that you won is a great thing for them. Having a strike that won, it would also have been a great, a great thing for them. Um, and, and there is a way that not having a strike, you know, irrespective of what the contract is, not having a strike itself is a lost opportunity for UPS Teamsters because going on strike changes you. You get a sense of your own power and the collective power that you and your coworkers have together, what solidarity does. It is one thing to say it, and it's another thing to feel it. And the day that you walk back in, I've, I've you know talked with workers about the day they walk back in after a big strike, the relation of power between you and that supervisor who's on your case is like changed permanently, you know, that that genie can't be put back in the bottle. All that said, there are downsides to strikes. There are real risks, real losses. People lose wages. The company loses customers and will it get them back? And the big question is like, would you actually be able to win more? by going on strike? Was there more that was gettable at this moment that UPS would have handed over if workers had struck? Those are the things that bargainers assess in deciding, do we, you know, is it time to come to an agreement or not? Do we recommend a TA? Do we sign one? And, and those are the, that's what members will be assessing in deciding whether to, whether to vote it up over the next few weeks. Could we have gotten more? Sean? I think that I, I, I agree with everything that Al said there. I think that 
Talking about Jeff Street specifically, I've, I've spent the past week and a half talking to as many coworkers as I can, walking different shifts, on the phone constantly for hours with drivers while they're out on route, and just getting the sense of what, how do people feel about the TA? You know, um, like I had mentioned earlier, uh, all of the part-timers that I've talked to in my building are very happy with it. I do have some drivers that probably are going to be voting no on this TA. And, you know, so for the reasons why, it really boiled down to three things. One is a very specific issue. You know, there is still a four-year pay progression to hit top scale as a package car driver. Uh, we have been fighting for uh, reducing that down to two years, how it had been uh, previously in the previous contract. We weren't able to get that at the table. Another one is a, a, a more general thing that I think is worth reflecting on, which is hazard pay. And what does that mean? I, I, I want to unpack that. The third thing is, you know, I, I had quite a few drivers who, like myself, really wanted to strike the bastards, you know, and really wanted to like go out and do that, you know. Just a few weeks ago in my building, we did a practice pick where we had about 300 people out there. I mean, we took out the whole long block outside of our building. And my coworkers loved that, loved that. I think if there, I don't think there's any more group of workers in this country right now who would love to go on strike than UPS workers. And I think just that sense of we're right there, we're right on the edge, we could just do it. I think that that's what some people are grappling with. But the hazard... The hazard pay question, I, I kind of want to unpack that a little bit because it, it means things to different people. And I think it, it speaks to a, a, a deeper truth. You know, obviously, uh, UPS workers, we didn't get a single penny of hazard pay for the entire duration of the pandemic while our company raked in unheard of record high profits. That pissed off a lot of my coworkers. A lot of my coworkers who had family get sick and die during the pandemic. Uh, co-workers who were forced to go work uh, those first couple of months of absolute uncertainty and terror out uh, on the streets making deliveries while our cities were shut down. We went through a lot and we learned a lot about what our labor is worth and in, 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 in two ways. What our labor is worth to the company because they made record high profits but what our labor is worth to our community, to the people that we work with, the people that we live with in our neighborhoods. Um, you know, the UPS package car driver for a lot of people was the face of the pandemic. We were the people that got them through it. We kept, we kept delivering goods to them. We kept their medicine coming to them. We delivered food. We delivered things that they wanted to help pass the time while they were trapped inside. I think that we really realized that we provide a really serious service and that we do a job that we love. But the company, UPS, they only care about profits and profits only for themselves. And I think that a lot of my coworkers have a bone to pick from, from that time. And I think that's something that's going to sit with people for a long time. They're mad. They're mad at this company. When I started at UPS in 2016 up in Wisconsin, it was pretty common for coworkers to, to brag about how great of a company UPS is. We, you know, we get paid all this money. We don't even need a GED and we can come in here and we can drive a truck and we can make six figures. We have health insurance that's paid for and we have a pension. You know, this company is great. I love this company. That kind of sentiment is totally gone inside the company now, inside the workplace. There, it's replaced by a lot of anger and a lot of a realization of an antagonism, of a difference. You know, there's us. There's us workers, there's us Teamsters, 
and then there's the company and the company is going to keep exploiting us and they're going to keep you know forcing us to work under the worst conditions and they're going to reap all of the extra benefits of that and they're going to leave us with nothing that's a real thing that a lot of my coworkers are dealing with and i think a lot of other workers around the country who were quote unquote essential are going to be unpacking i see that as a good thing i think that we are going are starting to see a level of militancy and a fighting spirit in the working class that i haven't seen in my lifetime i don't think anybody on this call has seen it in their lifetimes uh, we're seeing something that i think harkens back to the 20s and the 30s and the 40s when workers knew where they stood and they knew that what they could do and they were ready and willing to fight for it and in doing so they radically changed what this country looked like the wealthy the the elites in this country have done a lot to undo all of that over the subsequent decades but i think that we are seeing a, a shift we're seeing a pivot and i think that that sort of sentiment of not being willing to never wanting to settle for less and being willing to fight as far as we can to just know that we never did i think that that sentiment is deeply felt in, among my coworkers it's deeply felt among the broadening working class and i think that that is a very 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 good sign for our labor movement for our unions and for the future of this country thank you both for unpacking the context of some of the feelings portions of the UPS workforce are feeling right now. You know, I, I, I expect that some of my listeners wanted me to dig into the nitty gritty of the contract and talk about this, this provision or that provision, that language. But I thought it was really important to sort of unpack, you know, leaning back and sort of take a look at what's going on, you know, looking across the country, you know, different UPSers will say one thing at a hub, they'll have one problem, they'll have one thing, another thing that they'll be really excited about. But overall, I, what I see is, yeah, workers, some workers may be disappointed. It's almost encouraging to see that, to see that people are expecting more. I, I think looking forward, maybe that's the, the next steps question for you, Sean, and for you, Al, you know, I want to give you a moment to touch on anything important that we did not touch on either for Teamsters or for the broader public, but also, you know, what are the next steps for the EPS Teamsters in the case that this TA or an eventual TA that will be reached, what are the next steps? Next steps here locally is going to be uh, taking this contract, militantly enforcing it on the job. My coworkers are fired up. We have a level of union activity in, in the building that my coworkers have never seen before not even during the 97 strike. And we're going to carry that as far as we can. We are going to make sure that this contract and the benefits that it has for us are enforced to the letter because the company is going to pretend like it's business as usual, day one of ratification. We intend to ensure them that it is not. We gain something, we're going to, we're going to hold on to that and we're going to enforce that and we're going to expand upon that. I also think, too, that we're going to start seeing in this TA process the beginnings of a new contract campaign. What are those things that we would love to see in this next contract that we didn't win this round? You never can win everything in the contract. That's, not, that's what a union contract is. You go in there, you fight for everything you can, and you end up with what you end up with. And there's always a little bit more to go. I think that there's going to be a lot of issues over the next five years raised around part-time equity with full-timers and around more control over our jobs and over our lives. 
think that the issues that are getting raised right now around part-time pay, around more paid time off, all of these things are going to define the next contract and they're going to define the next five years for my coworkers. And that's really good because uh, we're going to keep the ball moving. We're concession, the concession stand is closed. I plan on seeing it closed for the rest of my life. I want to make sure that we, that we take everything that we can from this company up until the day that they hand the keys over to us. Now, beyond that, I think that we are going to, to see UPS Teamsters, the activists, the people who got really fired up in this, they're going to start relating to other workers differently. There's a lot of solidarity out there in this fight. I had coworkers tell me the day after our practice picket, wow, the city of Chicago's behind us because they saw a dozen unions out there. They saw elected officials. They saw a ton of things, you know, outside of their job for them. And that, that, that really, that meant a lot to people. But I think too, that we, uh, us activists did a lot to foster some organic relationships over the past couple of years that we intend to carry forward. For example, myself, I, I, and a few others were involved in, as we were doing our contract campaign at our gates, holding weekly shop floor meetings, doing rallies, doing practice pickets, we were very intentionally reaching out to and working with rank and file auto workers uh, because their contract fight is up in a month and they're going through a very similar situation to us. We know some folks who are very active in UAWD and you know they asked, can we come and see how you guys do things? You know, And so in Chicago, in Detroit, in Kansas City, you had rank and file auto workers come and join Teamsters at UPS Gates and just watch and listen and observe how we were building our contract fight. Now they're taking those ideas and they're applying it around to all of their factories where the, the big three fight is going on. They're looking at doing weekly shop floor meetings inspired by what we've been doing in the Teamsters. They're talking about practice pickets. They're talking about all these things that they watched us do and they know they can do it. Um, so I think that what's in store for my coworkers in, in, in Chicago and my coworkers in Detroit and Kansas City is that in about five or six weeks, we'll be walking a picket line, but it won't be ours. We'll be going out and walking it with our, our brothers and sisters in the UAW because we, we built a relationship there. We built solidarity between, the, between our two groups of workers. That kind of fostering, that sort of worker-to-worker relationship that we can, we, we can build consciously in a struggle like this is going to yield benefits that none of us here can really imagine, and I just want to see it get expanded upon. I love everything Sean just said, and I think that, that, that enforcement is certainly the next fight in every UPS shop. I hope, uh, I hope other locals are planning to, to take it up in the way that Sean said. We all know that UPS management routinely violates even the contract you have now, uh, and, and that filing grievances is not enough because there are some of these practices that they're happy to just pay out the penalty and keep violating the contract in the same way. And so taking, you know, Teamsters who have built these skills and relationships and confidence over the past year by organizing parking lot rallies and pickets and uh, the like, um, should put those skills to use, organizing action. The things like like making sure you actually can bring back the truck the, you know, after the eight hours is gonna take not just filing grievances, it's gonna take people getting together and saying, we're gonna just put this in action, we're gonna bag each other up, we're gonna make it the, the law in our workplace. And I think that's true of many of the things that have been won. I know in some locals, people are already planning to set up committees around particular issues in, in, in the new contract to make sure, you know, to, 
educate about what the new language says, get everyone that info, monitor the enforcement, prepare to, to, to make sure that what was won is enacted, and to start talking already about what, you know, what do we win next? What are the next steps on this? Where does this language turn out to fall short? What do we have to get in the next one? We just published an article in the Stewards Corner column in Labor Notes this past month about uh, making participatory bargaining a sort of continual practice, not just when you're in bargaining, but always. What are some of the, the kinds of things you can do? And it was things like this, having 10-minute meetings on a particular issue, getting bo both to educate about, you know, what are our rights, how do we enforce them, find out what's going on, get, you know, build connections among people who are interested in, in you know, doing more on this issue. So all that enforcement stuff. I think for the broader labor movement, uh, all union members should be demanding that their leaders take a cue from the leaders of the Teamsters and the auto workers and bargain hard, go after the companies publicly, mobilize the members. And all of us members should be taking a cue from UPS Teamsters and realizing, you know, we don't also have to wait for our leaders to lead. We can we can do it. Um, I'm so glad to hear that you all are directly in touch with auto workers and, you know, sharing your skills and lessons and that's, you know, all of us should, I hear, I talk to a lot of union members who have nothing like a contract campaign in their, you know, the, the phrase contract campaign is not even a phrase. It's like there's bargaining and you don't know what's on the table until they, the leaders come to you and say, here's the TA, we're going to vote on it. People don't even know what, what's being proposed. So having, having this example of like, how you do it in a more transparent way, in a more participatory way, and hundreds, thousands of people of, of new new experts coined out there who, who have been doing it from whom we can all learn like this this we should all set our sights higher we're not going to settle for the non-contract campaign contract campaign anymore we're going to do it like UPS Teamsters did it and better and well you know that's where the power is and if I may one other next step for UPS Teamsters and everyone is to come to the labor notes conference next spring <laughs> and share these lessons because that's where I mean the point of labor notes is to be a space where people you know, where rank and filers learn from one another and share these lessons. And I, I, you know, I can feel confident in saying we're going to have lots of UPS Teamsters there. I hope listeners will come and, you know, lead a workshop, attend a workshop, share you. There'll be, there'll be auto workers there after, you know, how their fight goes down this, this fall. And that's how we keep building our collective confidence and our collective knowledge of how to fight these fights harder and how to win. Sean Oren, Al Bradbury, thanks for joining me on The Upsurge. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Teddy. It was a pleasure. You just listened to episode 12 of The Upsurge. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at InTheseTimes.com and TheRealNews.com, where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. You can also show your support by sharing the episode on social media, giving us a five-star rating and writing a review. Follow us on Twitter at UpsurgePod and Facebook The Upsurge. You can also listen to us on our YouTube channel, The Upsurge. But the best way to show your support is by becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash upsurgepod. We are a listener-supported podcast and can't continue without you. You can find a link in the description. 
Thanks to all our Patreon supporters, but a very special thank you and shout out to our patrons at the business agent tier or higher. Shane Lynch, Greg Kerwood, Emil McDonald, Jason Cohn, Jason Mendez, Richard Hooker, Tony Winters, David Allen, Justin Allo, Tim Peppers, Dan Arlen, Dimitri Legas, Juliet Kang, Rand Wilson, Randy Ostro, Mac Hardin, Timothy Kruger, Nicole Halliday, D. Bo, Ed Laskowski, Chris Schleiger, Corey Levesque, Martin Labutt, Dane Rawl, Jeremy Brake, Matt Cooper, Marlon Russo, Martin Omasta, DG Gozo, Dennis Hazley, Enzo N, Probably Fang, Andy Grote, and Audrey Topping. All of your support means so much. The podcast was edited by myself. It was produced by NYGP and Ruby Walsh. Music is by Casey Gallagher. The cover art was done by Devlin Caro Resitar. I'm Teddy Ostro. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.